today's Bible reading is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 to 25, and it's found, if you'd like to follow it in your Bible, on page Try that again. Good morning. morning. You can't sing, but you are allowed to speak. I don't know how that works. Um, As long as it's not chanting, apparently it's okay. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and uh, we'll ask for God's help as we consider this part of His Word together. Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us. We thank you for your Word, uh, that through it, uh, you reveal yourself to us. You show us not only who you are, uh, that we can know you, but you also show us how we should live as your people. And we pray that today, uh, as we look at uh, 1 Peter again, uh, that you would uh, help us understand what it means to be your children, how we should live in this world uh, to honour you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Uh, I want to begin by showing you a little clip uh, from one of my favourite movies. The movie is called Witness. It stars Harrison Ford, but you won't see him in this clip. Um, if you know anything about the movie, uh, Harrison Ford's a, a detective and he ends up living with an Amish community. Um, and the scene that we're about to see, uh, the young boy in the family that he's staying with finds his gun. Um, and it's a, a chat between the grandfather and his son uh, about the weapon. This gun of the hand is for the taking of human life. We believe it is wrong to take life. That is only for God. Many times wars have come. And people have said to us, you must fight. You must kill. It is the only way to preserve the good. But Samuel, there is never only one way. Remember that. Would you kill another man? I would only kill a bad man. Only the bad man, I say. And you know this bad man by sight? You are able to look into their hearts and see this badness? I can see what they do. I have seen it. And having seen, you become one of them. Don't you understand? What do you take into your hands? You take into your heart. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing. So I'm assuming most of you have heard of the, the Amish. Uh, they live in isolated communities, mostly in Pennsylvania and Ohio in the United States. And they're famously known for their rejection of nearly all modern technology. Uh, so that includes cars and telephones and computers. Um, and they believe sincerely that this is how God wants them to live, how he's called them to live. Uh, it's all part of doing what that grandfather uh, describes to his grandson uh, in quoting a, a scripture from the Old Testament, to come out from among them and be ye separate. And the Amish have taken that to mean that they should retreat from the world, uh, the unbelieving world. Uh, now, as far as I know, we don't have an Amish community in Australia. Happy to be corrected later if that's not the case. Uh, but we do have a group called the Plymouth Brethren, uh, sometimes known as the Closed Brethren or the Exclusive Brethren. Um, now, I mentioned last time that I grew up in a place called Hillston. Uh, but, in fact, the first seven years of my life I spent in a little town called Lake Ajeligo. Uh, and in Lake Ajeligo, there's a significant Plymouth Brethren community. Uh, and uh, they are, well, the guys are harder to spot, but, but the women are generally uh, readily identified uh, by the headscarves that they wear. Um, generally have very long hair, uh, long skirts. Um, although these days the scarves are a little out of fashion and they've been permitted more to wear a, um, a 
a headband or a, or a flower. Um, like the Amish, perhaps not as extreme as the Amish, but like the Amish, uh, they have a view of the rest of society as uh, something to be avoided, something which corrupts. Uh, the world is seen as a, an evil influence. And so the idea is that you ought to isolate yourself from it. And so for them, that means no televisions, no radios. Um, some friends of ours that were a part of the Baptist church out of Akijelio had actually come out of the closed brethren community uh, and had become believers. And they told us that they had a little um, in-house term for an antenna. They used to refer to them as sin sticks. This separation went so far as uh, saying that it, you weren't allowed to break bread, you weren't allowed to eat a meal with anyone who was not a part of the brethren community. Um, and I saw this with my own eyes. There was a, a primary school in uh, Wentworthville where I used to teach scripture and there was a uh, close brethren community there and uh, the kids in that family that attended that school were not allowed to eat recess or lunch with the other children uh, so their mum would come into school every day uh, and sit and eat with them now we might shake our heads at that sort of practice um, it's sad to hear in some ways but as Christians I think we ought to recognize that we do have uh, an awkward relationship with the world around us. Uh, Jesus spoke about it in these terms. He said, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. I have chosen you out of the world. And so as Jesus' followers, we find ourselves both in the world, but no longer belonging to it. And because of this, some Christians have strayed into one of these two extremes. Uh, the extreme of the Amish and the Brethren communities, which is one of isolation. Uh, but there's another extreme, which is one of conformity. Um, so sometimes Christians go down that path, um, cut themselves off from the world. So the world's evil, you try and keep that out. And so Christians don't always go so far as to completely remove themselves from the world. You don't necessarily have to go and live in a commune, but it might be characterised by the things that you ban within your community. So you might ban Harry Potter novels, or watching Hollywood films, or certain kinds of music. Now don't get me wrong, there's all kinds of rubbish that we benefit from not exposing ourselves to especially jazz music. <laughs> but we do need to be wary of isolationist thinking. That notion if, that we, if we isolate ourselves, we can somehow inoculate ourselves against worldly influences. It's a misplaced hope anyway. After all, look at what Jesus said. That it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder... Adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. You can't find purity by shutting out the world. Sin starts in here, not out there somewhere. But at the other end of that spectrum is this idea of conformity, where we simply follow after the world, where we take after those around us. 
might mean adopting the values, the priorities, the morality of our culture to the point sometimes where we're quite indistinguishable from the world around us. Now maybe our reason for wanting to do that is just so that we, we fit in, so that we don't seem so odd. Maybe it's because we really want the world's approval and its admiration. Maybe because it's just easier and more comfortable to conform. The problem is, when we become so desperate not to cause any offence to those around us, we'll inevitably, inevitably end up compromising on the truth of the gospel. We become ineffective for God. And so, if people don't like certain aspects of the gospel, don't like the concept of sin or talk of God's judgment, or the idea that Jesus is the only way to find peace with God, if those ideas are offensive to others, well, no problem. Well, we'll just stop talking about that. And in doing so, we empty the gospel of its power. Now, if I'm right and both of these extremes are unhelpful, how does Jesus want us to live in this world? Well, what Peter writes for us here is helpful. Have a look from verse 11 of chapter 2. He writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In this letter, Peter's been reminding us of the great hope that we have life beyond this life. And there's this repeated call to live as foreigners and strangers and exiles or resident aliens here on earth. But being foreigners in the world is not an invitation to check out of this world, to set up our own Christian ghettos, have a bonfire with our television sets. Isolation is not the answer. We are called to live in the world, but to live lives that are noticeably different from the world. Lives that are marked by good deeds, by integrity and humility, by service and love and godliness. Now, people may still accuse you of doing wrong, throw some mud in your direction, but Peter's saying, as far as it depends on you, Make sure that there's nothing for that mud to stick to. As much as it depends on you, says Peter, live such a good life that any accusation will be baseless. Over and over again in this section, Peter tells us that we should live in a way that is impressive, that does good. So verse 15, he says, oh, we read that one already. Verse 15, he says, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Then in verse 20, it says, But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So there's this appeal to do good, even if you suffer for it. See, if you didn't know this already, and I'm sure you do, people are watching you. 
Lots of people are curious to know if there's anything to this Jesus stuff. And they'll usually start simply by watching how you live your life. Little wonder God calls us his ambassadors in this world. Because we represent him in this world. For good or for bad. Now in our passage today, Peter wants to focus on two particular areas. Two particular aspects of how we ever live our life in this world. Uh, one is around our attitude towards civil authorities, and the other has to do with work. But both of them are framed around this idea of submission. Uh, firstly, he says that we ought to be people who submit willingly uh, to our kings, to our governors, to those in authority over us. So pick it up there from verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Now keep in mind that when Peter writes this letter, he's not so naive as to think that people in power will always get it right, always do the right thing. Peter's got plenty of first-hand experience of how those in power abuse it. He's seen friends of his killed unjustly. And he knows that the people that are receiving this letter are getting a hard time from the authorities because of their faith in Jesus. And even knowing all of that, Peter still says to them, you are to submit to their authority. See, God has given us civil authorities to bring order, to bring stability to our communities. Now, of course, they're not perfect because they're run by people. But if you've ever seen or experienced what happens when a society does not have functioning government, you'll appreciate what a good thing civil authorities are. And so because God has put them where they are, we are to respect them. We are to submit to them. God commands it. But what does that look like? Well, living in 21st century Australia, that might mean something as simple as not building that carpool without council approval. It will mean being honest when it comes to filling out your tax return. And even though it's not such a problem at the moment, when the water restrictions are on, only watering your garden when you're supposed to. It means being a law-abiding citizen. Now, in a democracy like ours, at least, if you want a change of government or a change of some government policy, of course you're allowed to speak out about that, to protest, to petition, to campaign, and you get to cast your vote like everybody else every three or four years. But in the meantime, we're to show respect to those in positions of authority. We shouldn't be the kind of people that rubbish our elected officials, people who speak with derision about our government. I'm not saying you have to agree with everything the government does, but even in your disagreement, there needs to be respect. There needs to be a willingness to submit to their God-given authority. So while we may be citizens of heaven, foreigners and strangers here on earth, we ought to be model citizens here on earth. Now, of course, if the government ever made it illegal to confess to being a Christian or to speak to people about Jesus, I guess that's one law that we would need to break. 
and to suffer the consequences. But our default position should always be one of respect, one of submission. Peter's driving at a similar idea when he talks about slaves and masters in the next section. I pick it up there from verse 18. It says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Now, the translation in verse 18 is perhaps a little heavy uh, where it uses the word slave. Um, it's probably more accurate to... It's a, a word used more of a household servant. A bonded servant, no doubt, but a household servant. Um, but regardless of the particular situation, we would certainly struggle to find a similar situation of employment in Australia uh, to the, the one being spoken of here, the Roman system of slavery. You may believe that your boss is a slave driver, uh, but it's really not the same thing. But even though you may not be a servant in this sense, I think there are principles here that still apply to us. In Australia, it is a bit of a national pastime, isn't it, to, to rubbish the boss, to try and get away with as much as you can without getting noticed. But if you're a believer, you shouldn't be playing those games. We should respect those with that position of authority over us, to honour them in the way that we work. What's your reputation like as a worker? Do you have a reputation for honesty and integrity? Or are you the one who never stops complaining about the pay, about the conditions, about the work you're being asked to do? Do you join in with relish when anyone else is running down the boss behind his or her back. Make sure that you're not getting in strife for the wrong reasons, says Peter. See, if your boss is always writing you because you're always surfing the internet and making personal calls on company time, uh, or just simply not doing what you've been asked to do, don't confuse that with persecution. That's fair enough. See what Peter says there in verse 20? He says, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing the wrong thing and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, that is commendable before God. See what he's saying? Then pull your finger out and do your job properly. Work in a way that respects your employer, that honours God. A way that leaves no room for accusation. Because how we go about our work matters. How we conduct ourselves in the world matters. There's a, a parallel passage to this one in the book of Titus that has a great little expression that I want to share with you. Um, it's found in Titus chapter 2. Paul here is writing and he says, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make a teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Now that last word there, translated attractive, is from a Greek word, cosmeo, which is where we get the word cosmetics from. So to paraphrase a little, Paul is saying that our visible lives are like cosmetics for the gospel. They adorn the gospel. Now we know that there can be good cosmetics and there can be 
bad cosmetics. The way that we live as believers is going to affect people's perception of the gospel for good and for bad. So the integrity and the quality of your life can make the gospel an attractive thing. We can earn a hearing for the gospel by the way that we live. But by the same token, if your life does not match up to what you say you believe, then who's going to bother listening to what you have to say about God? I've met far too many people who simply aren't interested in even thinking about Christianity because they've met too many hypocrites who call themselves Christians. It's hard to blame them. Now that's not to say that your life needs to be perfect or that you need to project some kind of constant happy persona. No, more often than not, it's in fact how we deal with the difficulties of life, the hardships of life. That's when the gospel often shines brightest. As we perhaps admit our mistakes and seek forgiveness from others. These are things that demonstrate that our faith in God is real. That it's not just for the sunny seasons of life. So how does your life fit with the good news of the gospel? Is it making the gospel attractive? Would someone bother asking what makes you different? Or is there not really very much different to notice? And are there things in your life that would rightly turn someone off the gospel? I'm not talking about your obsessive interest in pickling your own vegetables. I'm talking about the serious things, the hypocritical stuff, the things that you know, the things that your friends know, don't fit with your claim to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe it's the language you use, the jokes you tell, your sexual activity. Maybe it's the way you indulge your temper and fly into a rage, the way you put people down. Perhaps it's the way you try and manipulate others around you. Maybe it's the way you use or abuse alcohol. It might not be any of those things. Maybe something else. But whatever it is, if it's obvious that your relationship with God doesn't matter enough to you to cause you to live differently, why should what you believe matter to anybody else? And yet, there will still be times when you could be doing the right thing and still be accused of wrongdoing. There will be times when you will be unfairly treated, when you will not see justice. Jesus himself provides us with an example for how we can endure that too. And that's where our section today finishes up. So from verse 21, Peter writes, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Peter reminds us that in Jesus' life and in his death, um, these are things not just for us to appreciate at a distance, but in fact, he calls us to follow in his very steps. And what difficult steps they were. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, 
He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus shows us how we can endure through injustice. He does it by entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus goes to the cross in a travesty of justice. The innocent in the place of the guilty. But he does that trusting in his father. He suffers the humiliation of a criminal's execution on that tree. He does that for us. So that we might be healed. So that we might live different lives. Lives here that are full of righteousness and good works. Knowing that about why Jesus did what he did doesn't motivate you to live differently. I don't know what will. But in this, Jesus also sets us an example to follow. A picture for how to suffer with dignity. We do it by entrusting ourselves to our Heavenly Father. It's our trust in God as the just judge that is our source of strength in the face of injustice. We know that while there will be never perfect justice in this world, there is a judge who sees all, who judges perfectly, and who will one day right all wrongs. And so we can endure, knowing that there will come a day when everything will not only be exposed and revealed, but everything will be put right, when everything is made new. Now that's not to say that we shouldn't fight for justice now, that we just put up with our lot in this life and wait until the next. I think Peter here is advocating that we, we tolerate corruption or abuse. I think that misses the point. And it's certainly not consistent with God's call upon us to stand up for, to stand alongside, to speak for the marginalised, the weak, the oppressed picture of what it means to love other people, isn't it? To seek justice for them. But at the same time, there is a, a Christ-like freedom that enables us to bear up under the frustration of injustice because we know that there will be a day when the just judge puts everything right. And when we understand that, we will still grieve injustice Suffering, but we won't be overwhelmed by it. We won't be overwhelmed by despair at the injustice we see in our world. Because we'll know that God is in control and that He will make it right when Jesus returns. And until then, Jesus leaves us this example to follow an example of how to live in this world in a way that honors God, to keep doing good live lives that adorn the gospel and to trust in God's justice. I want to finish uh, where Peter started in verse 11 and urge you as he does, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, 
live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Reuben's going to lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we live our lives in the world for Jesus' sake. Help us not to conform to our culture and help us not to separate ourselves from our world. May we live with integrity. Help us to do good for your name's sake. Help us to do good so that those around us will glorify you. May we submit ourselves to the human authorities you have placed over for your sake. May we respect everyone. Help us to love our family of believers. May we fear you and honour our leaders. Thank you for the way Jesus suffered for your glory. May we see the liberty that comes through our identity in Christ. May we see the confidence of your judgment to come so that we may endure of injustice. Help us to learn to entrust ourselves to you, for you judge justly. Lord Jesus, please come. May you come to end the pain and the suffering. But until you do, help us to live our lives for your sake.